A component of all religions is the priest. He is the go-between or the intermediary between God and man. Which reminds me of a riddle. What do you call a sleepwalking priest? (laughs) Well, of course, a Roman Catholic. (laughs) A Roman Catholic, of course. During the pandemic, there was a Catholic priest in Maryland who performed drive-through confessionals. He had a confessional lane in his church's parking lot. In light of the social distancing guidelines, his chair was actually six feet from the car windows. And people kept him quite busy, which should be no surprise, for there is a strong sense in every honest heart that we are not enough, that we need help to get to God. This was true of Israel of old, and to supply that help, God appointed a priest. In chapters 5 through 7, the writer of Hebrews discusses the Jewish priesthood, and he compares it to the priesthood of Jesus. It's true that humans need a priest, and for a time, God sanctioned Israeli priests from the tribe of Levi. But now, our Savior, Jesus Christ, has become a better priest. Where the Levitical priests failed, Jesus has succeeded. The Jews trusted in a high priest, but to those who trust in Jesus alone, he is a great high priest. And so chapter 5 begins, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now here's the writer's initial point. Priests for men are taken from men. And yet this isn't a given in every religion. Did you know that in Vietnam, elephants are deemed sacred? Touch an elephant and it supposedly brings you good luck? In most pagan religions, animals are thought to procure divine help. Some of the Jewish rabbis thought of angels in a similar way. Divine assistance was conveyed to men through angels. But the writer of Hebrews insists, priests for men come from men. Your dog fetches your slippers. Your guardian angel keeps your car from swerving into a ditch. But neither animal or angel helps us in things pertaining to God. Neither has any impact on our spiritual status. Neither can improve our relationship with God. In verse 2, a human priest can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is also subject to weakness. Isn't it encouraging to know that God cares about our weakness? Priests for men come from men because God wants priests with compassion. God cares for the ignorant and the wayward and the weak. And an effective priest shares his empathy. This is why angels don't qualify here. You know, angels never tire or hunger or sleep. That's why they have very little pity for us. The angelic answer for weakness is to buck up. When angels see you caving in, it baffles them. See, angels are cold-blooded do-gooders. 
see a puny human give in and sin, and an angel wants to pick up his sword and avenge God's honor. It boggles his brain that God holds judgment at bay and shows us humans mercy. But in becoming a man, Jesus became acquainted with human weakness. He got tired and hungry and thirsty. Jesus cried and he hurt. Jesus grew angry and discouraged. In his 30 plus years on earth, Jesus ran the whole gamut of human emotions. And he is now able to empathize with you. See, Jesus has been where you're at. He understands what you need. Jesus supplies the peace and power we desperately seek. And this is what makes Jesus the perfect priest. So in regards to priests, verse 3, because of this, he is required as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. Now once a year, the Jewish high priest would offer a sacrifice to cover the sins of the nation. But first, he would always sacrifice for himself, his own sins. His own sin had to be dealt with before he atoned for others. This safeguarded the priest against self-righteousness. We'll learn in chapter 7, the only sinless priest is our high priest, Jesus Christ. He was the one perfect priest between God and man. Yet as a man, even our Lord Jesus bore the shame of our sin. On the cross, our sin was thrust on Jesus' innocent shoulders. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says so strikingly, He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And Jesus felt it. He felt it in his bones. He felt the alienation from God caused by sin. He knows sin's horrific consequences. This is why he cried out on the cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As a human, Jesus understands our dilemma, and thus he is qualified perfectly to be our priest. Verse 4, and no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. See, a priest had to be a man, but not just any man. He had to be a man appointed by God. And in the Old Testament, God chose priests from the tribe of Levi and from the family of Aaron. And whenever someone lacking that proper pedigree usurped the role of a priest, as did Uzziah, you remember God's punishment was swift and severe. King Uzziah was struck with leprosy. Priests were always God-appointed. As was our Lord Jesus. Even God's own son didn't assume the role of priest. No, he was appointed by the Father in heaven. Verse 5 tells us, So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he, that is the Father, who said to him, the Son, and now he quotes Psalm 2 verse 7, You're my Son, today I have begotten you. And at first, the application of this verse to this argument seems strange. For what does his birth have to do with God appointing Jesus as high priest? 
And yet when you compare Scripture with Scripture, you learn more. In Acts chapter 13, verse 33, Paul applies Psalm 2, verse 8, not to Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, but to his resurrection. Jesus was begotten, or he began a new and glorified life when he rose from the dead. He ascended to the Father's right hand. And it was at that point that God appointed Jesus high priest in the heavenly temple, an eternal priest. And today, Jesus ministers there as God's chosen intermediary. He even intercedes for you and me. Verse 6 is also helpful as he also says in another place, and here he quotes Psalm 110 verse 4, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now here's a crucial point. Jesus was not a Levitical or an earthly priest. During his earthly ministry, Jesus never wore priestly garments. He never offered a Levitical sacrifice. He never ministered as a priest in the temple at Jerusalem. Jesus was a priest, but not of the Old Testament type. A priest after the order of Levi. No, Jesus was a different kind of priest entirely. He was of the heavenly order of Melchizedek. See, Levitical priests were temporary and earthly whereas Jesus is an eternal and a heavenly priest. As Psalm 110 reads, you are a priest forever. Next week in chapter 7, we're going to learn about the priesthood of Melchizedek and what it teaches us about Jesus' character and credentials. But back to the humanity of a priest. He writes of Jesus, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications, with vehement cries and tears. And this refers to Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember how in great physical agony, in tremendous spiritual anguish, so much so that Jesus' sweat had the consistency of thick droplets of blood. In that agony, Jesus prayed. We're told here, to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Notice whatever it was that Jesus prayed that night, he was heard and heeded. You know, we know Jesus' heart was heavy as he entered the garden. The name of the garden, Gethsemane, means olive press. And Jesus was under great pressure that night. His angst wasn't just centered on the next day's cross. Imagine the pain his disciples are going to cause him. One will betray him. One will deny him. All will forsake him. In going to the cross, Jesus is being asked to die for traitors in turncoats. So-called friends about to stab him in the back. Often obedience requires us to put our feelings aside. And this is why verse 8 concludes, Though he was a son... Yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And you know, this is what you and I are learning. And it can be tough. When we're asked to love a so-called brother who does us dirty. Or forgive an enemy we thought was a friend. 
Author A.W. Pink writes, Our sharpest trials often come from those in whom we have instilled the most trust and to whom we have shown the greatest kindness. Obedience usually requires two things, some sort of struggle with our own feelings, and in the end, often courage. Let me read again verse 8. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And at first this sounds strange when applied to our Lord Jesus, that God's son learned obedience? Now don't misunderstand, Jesus was never disobedient. It's just that in heaven, as God's equal, he never had the opportunity to obey. You don't have to obey when you're the boss, when you're the one that's calling the shots. But when Jesus laid aside his heavenly glory, and as a man assumed the role of a servant, for the first time, God's Son was called on to take orders. And in doing so, Jesus learned the rigors and the consequences of obedience. Oftentimes, obedience involves struggle and courage. And then we're told in verse 9, and having been perfected, or that is matured, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus learned to obey so that he could be a good boss. This could have been the pilot episode for Undercover Boss. I'm sure you've seen the TV show. I love the show. It's when the boss, he dresses incognito and he works a grunt level job in his own company. You know, the CEO learns what it's like to work in the trenches and then usually he returns to the boardroom with a whole new appreciation for his employees and, and often help uh, for his workers. Well, this was Jesus, our undercover boss. That means that today... You can be certain that when a command comes down from Jesus, it's not coming from some bigwig oblivious to your situation. No, before Jesus started giving orders, he first learned how to take them. His commands come with a purpose, and his help, with his help, they can be accomplished. And so he tells us in verse 10, Jesus has been called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And then he says, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Now often the problem in our churches is a dull preacher. I admit that. Or a dull sermon. And it's pastors like me that bear that responsibility. But at other times, the problem is dull hearing. And that's when it's church members like you that are responsible. This term dull in verse 11 means sluggish in the ears. And today's churches are full of believers with serious hearing problems. You know, some of us are selective listeners. We hear only what we want to hear. What applies to, to somebody else. I start talking about your spouse, and it's like, oh, Pastor Sandy, lay it on, lay it on, lay it on. Oh, man, that guy needs to hear that. 
Oh boy, we listen when it applies to our boss or to our kids, but never when it applies to me. A pastor was once asked if his church needed a death ministry. He answered, yes, but we're all death. The Hebrews' problem wasn't dull teaching or dull sermons. The problem was dull listening. They liked to critique the preacher's ability when the problem was their own lack of hearing. The author had so many wonderful truths that he hoped to share with his readers. He says in verse 11 that he has much to say of the priestly ministry of Jesus. Think of it. Jesus is in heaven right now, today, interceding for you and me. I mean, how intriguing is that, that Jesus is praying for us? I'd love to delve into those mysteries. But the author here says that he can't go into it because his readers aren't ready. Deep truths would have been wasted on people so hard of hearing. And it makes me wonder what insights God has waiting for us. But he refuses to reveal them until we hear what he's already said. He says in verse 12, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. Now the first principles or literally the ABCs of Christianity, are, are the basics. These believers still hadn't learned the biblical basics. You know, it's foolish to teach t-ballers pick-off plays when they haven't yet learned how to put the glove on their hand. you got to learn the basics before you can move on to the deeper stuff. Some of the Hebrews should have been teachers by now. Their spiritual growth and their maturity had not measured up to the depth of the teaching that they had received. The writer continues to mourn the immaturity of his readers. He says, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. See, milk is for babies, for people with no teeth. It may be cute to see an infant with a bottle in its mouth. But as far as I'm concerned, it's absolutely disgusting to see a grown man walking around sucking on a baby bottle. And it's equally disturbing to watch a person who's been a Christian for years now and yet still struggle with the basics. Verse 13 says, For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. And here's how you move out of spiritual babydom. Here's how you go from milk to meat. It takes more than just adding calories or knowledge. No, to build a strong faith, you have to exercise what you know. Not just hear, but obey what you hear. We grow spiritually by reason of use. Christian maturity comes by applying and using what we learn. Several years ago, I saw an NBC News article entitled, Big Baby Boom. Supersized deliveries have doctors worried. Probably some moms too. Over the last few decades, there's been a spike in the birth of big babies. 
A Pennsylvania woman birthed a 13-pound, 12-ounce little girl, if you want to call her that. A German baby weighed in at 13 and a half pounds, a whopper. A British mom delivered little George, who weighed 15 pounds and 7 ounces at birth. They returned his infant clothes and bought George home in PJs meant for a six-month-old. Today, hospitals are seeing a rash of big babies, but so are a lot of churches. We got bloated believers with a lot of fat. Oh, they know a lot, but they rarely apply what they know. They're not living it. They're not turning it into muscle. Don't be a big baby. We all need to grow in Christ. We need to mature in our faith. Well, chapter 6 tells us, Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, that is, the spiritual ABCs, let us go on to perfection or maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Now this is interesting here. Notice what the author lists as the basics of our faith. He sets them out here in three pairs. The first two basic truths teach us how to obtain and maintain a relationship with God. What are they? Repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. From the very outset of Christianity, Jesus came with the invitation, repent and believe. See, there's nothing we can do to earn God's favor. Our best efforts are dead works, or that is filthy rags. We need to believe in what Jesus has done and does now for us. The foundation of Christianity has always been repent and believe. But here's the second pair of basics of the doctrine of baptisms, and of the laying on of hands. These Christian truths concern the work of the Holy Spirit. And notice the writer here puts it, baptisms, plural. Realize there are three different baptisms spoken of in the New Testament. First, there's our baptism into the body of Christ, our conversion, or the spiritual initiation that takes place and the connection that occurs to God's family. Well, second is water baptism. This is the symbolism that we enter into when we go out into the pond where we identify with Jesus' death and resurrection physically with the water. But then the third baptism is a spirit baptism. This is a point in time filling or anointing of the Holy Spirit upon my life where I'm given power to be a witness for Jesus Christ. And oh, how I need all three baptisms. And this is where the laying on of hands by church members comes into play. For in the early church, physical touch was a means of spiritual conveyance. When a person was appointed to an office or sent on a mission, or given special authority, or bestowed a spiritual gift. It was usually conveyed or transmitted by the laying on 
of human hands. And when the power of the Holy Spirit came upon God's people, it too was accompanied by physical touch. I believe God still conveys through his, his, his power to us through holy and loving hands. Well, then the third pair of basic doctrines deal with the end times. Of the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. One day, the bodies of both the righteous and the wicked will be resurrected, immortal. Every human being will live forever. But then comes the judgment. Each of us will be assigned to either heaven or hell, and that choice will be based on how we treated God's Son, Jesus Christ. Now, if you don't have a handle on these three areas of Christianity, relationship with God and ministry of the Holy Spirit and final judgment, then you've got some catching up to do. You need to go back and you need to learn the basics. God has more to reveal, but first, we need to grasp the foundations. Now, notice again the plea in verse 1. Let us go on. That's the whole point of the book. We need to go on in our faith. Faith is not a one-time proposition. We continue in our faith. And the writer is concerned here about those who are stuck or stunted. He issues a warning, verse 4, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. Now the point is, don't fall away. Continue in your faith. But in making this point, other questions get raised here. First question, is it possible for a true Christian to fall away from the faith and forfeit or lose their salvation. Now, some folks say no. They skirt around verses 4 and 5 by suggesting that the descriptions don't actually apply to legitimate Christian conversion. Oh, when it says partakers of the Holy Spirit, they just flirted with him. They never married him. That's what will be said. Or, Or they tasted the heavenly gift. Oh, that means that they held it in their mouth, but they didn't really swallow. Sounds like President Clinton when he confessed he smoked marijuana, but he didn't inhale. I mean, it kind of defies common sense. The point of smoking is to inhale. Commentator Warren Wearsby was a staunch, once saved, always saved advocate. Yet even he conceded to suggest the phrase, partakers of the Holy Spirit, means they only went along with the Spirit to an extent is to ignore the meaning of the verb. It means to become sharers. I've concluded the people addressed were true believers, not mere professors. It's also interesting that in other passages, these same terms are clearly used of bona fide believers. In Hebrews 3 verse 1, in chapter 3 verse 14, the partakers there are obviously Christians. 
This whole letter written to the Hebrews was written to true believers. There's no doubt in my mind that chapter 6 is a warning to Christians that if they fall away and stop trusting in Jesus as God's one provision for their sin and turn their back on Him, they'll no longer be saved. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that a believer can lose their salvation by anything they do or don't do. Good works don't earn our salvation and misdeeds don't lose salvation. Remember the basics. A relationship with God is based on faith, not dead works. But if you don't nurture your faith, if you don't cultivate it, then the faith that you once had can atrophy and die. See, faith is not a sign on the bottom line kind of proposition. It's more like a seed that gets planted into the soil. And we have to nurture it and grow it and water it and cultivate it. And if we don't, it can die. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. And this raises a second question from our text. If Hebrews 6 teaches a person can disavow their faith and lose their salvation, then doesn't it also teach that once it's lost, it can never be retrieved? For when you read the passage straight through, it says, For it is impossible, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. Now first, remember that there are a host of Bible passages that teach, as long as a wayward soul has breath, then there's hope. You remember the prodigal son was part of the family before he fell away. And yet the father warmly welcomed him back when he came home with a repentant heart. Also, Romans 11 verse 23 says of the Jews who were cut off from the vine. That they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. And note that, God is able to graft them in again. They had it, lost it, but then they get it back again. I believe it's possible. I believe the writer here is saying that if a person falls away from faith in Jesus and denies the Lord's ability to secure their salvation, they are personally rejecting or crucifying Jesus all over again. They're bringing shame to His name. And as long as they maintain that stance, their back against Jesus, their stance of unbelief, then it's impossible to renew them to repentance. There's only one provision of, for, for forgiveness. And that's the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you deny it, how can you expect to be saved? But the passage doesn't talk about what happens if they do return. And I believe the rest of the scripture attests that if they do, God will graciously renew them to repentance. And once again, they'll become recipients of God's mercies. Recall these Hebrew believers. They were being tempted to return to the religion of Judaism. And here they're being warned, if they renew their faith in the Levitical priests 
and in animal sacrifices and in temple ritual and diminish Jesus. They are renouncing God's sole provision for their sin. And you can't have it both ways. It's either or. You can't trust in the blood of animals as payment for your sin and in the blood of Christ at the same time. Think of it this way. Say some kind, loving, wonderful person in our church comes up and gives me tickets to the Braves game. It's been a while, but (laughs) just saying, you know. And yet my kids are in town, and you know how your kids are, you know, and I give my tickets away to my kids. Now I can't go to the game. As long as I don't have a ticket, I have no hope of getting into that game. you got to have a ticket to get into the game. But that doesn't mean that I can't go down to the box office and purchase a new ticket. I can as long as tickets are still available. And breathe easy, friends. Heaven is not yet full. Verse 7 tells us, For the earth which shrinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. See, like the rain, God's grace falls upon all men. But it's what we do with the rain that matters. If we bear fruit, we'll be blessed. If we sprout thorns, we'll be cursed. Our destiny is shaped by our response to God's grace. He says, but beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. He's been warning the Hebrews, but he has high hopes that they'll take heed. And if they persevere in their faith, they'll receive a reward. He says, for God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. Those who fall away from their faith never receive the reward they could have received had they persevered. And then he says in verse 11, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And I love this verse. Here is how you hold on. Realize there is always a lapse of time between the giving of a promise and its fulfillment. Thus, it requires faith and patience to inherit that promise. See, some folks start out with faith, but they lack patience. And as a result, their faith flames out and dies. They lack endurance. Whereas other folks, they wait on God. They're always being very patient, but they never trust Him and take steps of faith. They get spiritually sluggish and they lose momentum. They're in sort of a perpetual holding pattern. If they're going to land the promise, then they need to exercise some faith. It's the combination of both faith and patience that inherits God's promise. And he points to Abraham as an example. Verse 13. 
For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Now God's promise to Abraham was the seed from which all salvation flowers. Jesus descended from Abraham. Thus, everyone saved by Jesus is blessed through the promises God made to Abraham. And God was serious about his promises, so much so that he wanted to make it a guarantee. He he wanted to put a stamp on it. He wanted to confirm it with his oath. Now, in in antiquity, taking an oath was like signing a contract today. You sign a contract because the other party doesn't trust you. And so, in antiquity, you would take an oath. And in taking that oath, you would swear by someone greater than yourself. The priest, maybe, or maybe the king. And in doing so, you would be calling on that person to make certain that you held up your end of the deal. So, if I swore by the king, then I would be counting on the king to enforce my oath. So, when God promised to bless Abraham and make it sure... He too took an oath to give Abraham and us the utmost confidence. But who does God swear by? I mean, no one is greater than God. And so he swore by himself. Verse 17, thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, the immutability or the unchangeableness of his counsel confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things, the two things were his original promise and then his oath. By two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation. Friends, no one in the history of the world has made a promise as secure as the promise of your salvation. That's why you don't go back. God's willingness to bless Abraham and in doing so save us is sealed by two immutable or unalterable entities, God's word and God's oath. God cannot lie. Thus his word should be enough to assure us. But God has put guarantee on top of guarantee. He has added his oath. See, Abraham had a long wait for the fulfillment of the promise that God made to him. His son Isaac wouldn't be born for 25 more years after the promise was given. But Abraham's wait was nothing compared to the recipients of God's salvation. For the Old Testament Jews and the Gentiles who would believe waited 2,000 years from God's promise to Abraham until the birth of Messiah. God knew that there would be this long wait for salvation. That's why he bolstered the faith of his people by sealing his immutable promise with an immutable oath. He swore by himself. How many of you play cards? Uh, You don't want to admit it here in church, but... 
you know, I like to play cards. I play spades. I love to play spades. And, and you know what happens when you're playing spades and you trump your partner's trick? You know, you know what you say? You double won it. You, you know what I mean? You won it twice. Well, this is what God did with your salvation. He won it twice. He double won it. Faith is only as good as its object. And thus God gives us double assurance. He gave us his promise, but then he sealed it with his oath. You and I, that means that you and I have no excuse to ever, ever, ever fall away. We have an ironclad promise from God for our salvation. And then verse 18 identifies us as we who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. Now here he refers to Numbers 35 and the cities of refuge. See, unlike today in Old Testament times, revenge was a right. If you took the life of my family member, even by accident, then it was my right, if not my duty, to take your life. See, in the Old Testament, it was eye for an eye. And yet God defended the innocent. For if the cause of death was accidental, then the person at whose hands the death occurred could flee to a city of refuge. There were different cities all set up all throughout Israel, and they could flee to that city of refuge for protection. And as long as that person stayed put within the walls of that city, they were safe. No one could touch them. But if they left the city, they were on their own and had removed themselves from the protection. And see, this is figurative of our hope in Christ. For Jesus is our city of refuge. Continue in Him. And He protects us from the penalties of sin. But fall away from your faith. In other words, leave town, so to speak. And you're on your own, friend. This is why the writer exhorts us to continue in Christ. And he says in verse 19, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus having become high priest forever. The earliest symbol of Christianity was not a cross. It was a boat anchor. Archaeologists have found over 60 anchors carved on the walls of the catacombs in Rome. You see, if your faith is in Christ, then He is your anchor. And an anchor is the object below the surface. It can't be seen, yet it holds what's on top of the water. It holds it steady, what's visible, so that it doesn't drift. A ship's anchor is below the water. But understand, our anchor, Jesus Christ, is above the heavens. A ship's anchor grabs onto the ocean floor, whereas the risen Christ has ascended into heaven, and he has hooked himself to God's throne. And he is now holding tight you and me. He anchors anyone on the surface who connects to him. 
this means you have a friend in high places. See, here on life's surface, wow, violent storms can erupt. Viruses or cancers or financial problems or unfair persecution. I have no doubt some of you are going through violent storms even as I speak. Yet when these storms occur, when they blow upon the waters of life, it's comforting to know that we are anchored. If you have faith, you can feel the tension. We are tied off to someone greater than ourselves. Jesus has us anchored to God. And that's why we need to continue on with Jesus. Never draw back. Cut that tie line of faith and you'll begin to drift. I love how the poet puts it. I can feel the anchor fast as I meet each sudden blast. And the cable, though unseen, bears the heavenly strain between. Through the storm I safely ride till the turning of the tide and it holds my anchor holds. Blow your wildest then, O gale, on my bow so small and frail. By his grace I shall not fail, for my anchor holds. My anchor holds. Your anchor holds, friend. You need to trust him. No matter what you've been called on to endure, you'll hold fast if you're anchored to Jesus. Don't let go. Well, the chapter closes. Jesus is our high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. We have an anchor in heaven, a priest named Jesus, but not just any priest. Oh, he is one after the order of Melchizedek. And that is such a big deal. We'll learn why next week.